Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Tim Murray. Tim is a local businessman, an entrepreneur, and the Labour candidate for the Wentworth by-election. Tim, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hi, I. Thanks for coming to my place. I uh, want to start with the big thing. It's um, this is a huge time for you, for Labour, for Wentworth. What's um, being in the middle of all this of like the the most what the most contested Wentworth by-election in a while? How does it feel? Um, it's pretty surreal. I never expected things to work out this way. I, when I put my hand up, expected to be going against a very popular uh, Prime Minister. And I did not expect to uh, get much of a swing my way. And we had very modest plans of what we could achieve in this election. Um, I did expect that the Labour Party would win the next general election, which would then uh, precipitate a by-election. I didn't expect Mr Turnbull uh, to stay um, should the Liberal Party not uh, be in government. So uh, we expected a by-election at some point, but I didn't expect it to be this way round. Hmm. For, for people who are listening in and aren't necessarily um, up to date on the, the politics, either locally or nationally, um, we've recently had a uh, Prime Minister leave, and in the process of him leaving, he's also left his local electorate seat, which is um, this one, Wentworth. And so we have the by-election sooner than expected, and you're running against a completely different candidate than you expected. Correct. I think you were very polite in using the term left. <laughs> I think most people would say it was turfed out, and the electorate is angry because they don't know why, and they, they can't fathom why we now have a different Prime Minister, and it's not Malcolm Turnbull. When you say can't fathom, what are you, what are you referring to? So why do you think um, he was removed as Prime Minister? Gee, I, um, based on my very uninformed understanding, I think it would have more to do with the specific politics of the Liberal Party than on his um, popular appeal or lack of popular appeal, but I don't know. Or any policy. Or any policy, for sure. Or any concerns about the electorate. Well, almost goes without saying. <laughs> right, so, you know, people are angry. They're like... Those people down in Canberra aren't thinking about me, they're thinking about themselves. And they're not thinking about governing our country, they're dealing with their own internal politics. That is something that the entire country is now concerned about. And as we have a by-election here, we're the first place, really, to um, be the expression of that anger. And I hear it every day. When I'm out um, at Rose Bay Ferry Wharf or Bondi Junction Railway Station um, in the mornings, people are expressing their anger to me. Isn't this, to some extent, though, like the age-old thing? Like government at a, at a high enough level is inevitably corrupt because anyone who isn't playing for themselves gets, gets crushed by the bulldozer of history? No. No. Um, I think there are some things about politics that have always been with us um, from Greek and Roman times. Um, however, there are other modern things uh, that I think are not good. And I think the, 
I guess well, I guess historically, um, you have people who come in who are good and get things done. Then corruption sets in mm. and the rot and then collapse and decline and then renewal. And I think we're in the collapse and decline period here waiting for renewal. And I want to be part of that renewal. Cool. What does the renewal look like to you? It's got many different facets, but key areas that we need to get right is a scientifically based climate policy. We are so far behind the rest of the world. China, where I spent 20 years, has better climate policies than Australia. Europe is well ahead of us. America that dithers on environmental issues is ahead of us. We need a scientifically based climate policy and we need it now. Our immediate uh, former prime minister now, who until very recently held this electorate, has um, was famous or infamous for um, crossing the floor on this issue a few years ago and then seemed to not have been able to get anything done on that issue. Um, and that seems to have been as far as I can tell, um, about, again, about politics rather than about policy? It's been unbelievable. The last 10 years, we've lost several prime ministers on this issue, on our inability to uh, make a, a firm commitment and decision about what we're going to do about climate policy. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull uh, supported the Labor Party policy. It was bipartisan to have an emission trading scheme and to get our uh, climate uh, issues under control. That killed off his leadership of uh, the Liberal Party and led to Abbott taking over, who does not believe in climate change and had no climate policies. And we've just continued to see this uh, destruction of Prime Ministers uh, over the issue of uh, climate change. So just before Malcolm Turnbull lost his position as Prime Minister, he had a policy, a solid policy, on dealing with climate change, the National Energy Guarantee. It wasn't perfect, but at least it had some levers and dials which we could change policy settings on to dial up alternatives, etc. And that was the final catalyst that led to him being removed as the Prime Minister. Is this... Inevitable that prime ministers in Australia will be destroyed by their willingness to fight climate change? No. The Australian population uh, overwhelmingly wants us to make a decision on climate change and to put in new policies that addresses it. We want renewable energy. We want emission trading schemes. We want to stop pollution. And we want to start having alternative forms of energy. But... It's not. It's not as you say. It's the last ten years. It's not just that a a um, the Liberal Party that is, what would you say? At least broadly speaking, speaking, seen as the anti anti change um, party on this issue. That, that I'd have to disagree there. I think that the Liberal Party has used it as a wedge to divide us, and the Labor Party has been keen to put in good climate policy, but the wedge politics driven by the Conservatives in the Liberal Party has made it hard for the Labor Party to maintain uh, that climate policy and has led the Labor Party to lose government. Okay. So you were talking about the renewal and climate change is one of those parts of it. What else is part of this renewal? Education. So public education has been underfunded. 
Um, there was bipartisan support for the uh, Gonski reforms. However, um, the Liberal Party uh, was supporting that, but this year and next year, they will not continue with the Gonski funding to uh, increase the level of funding to public education. So our public education system is woefully underfunded. There is a maintenance backlog in New South Wales of nearly a billion dollars. Um, we need to spend a total of $17 billion on our education system, and only the Labor Party is committed to doing that. When you say backlog of maintenance, billion dollars, that's like keeping what we already have running properly? Bringing it up to standard. That's what okay. I mean. So I think it's the exact number is about $806 million. Mm -hmm. um, our local high school, uh, Rosebury Secondary College, I think their backlog is something like $1.1 million. Cogra High School is 1.7. Now, Cogra High School, with its 1.7 million in backlog, um, was allocated $33,000 this year. Oh, fantastic. Right. So what's that going to get you? The stationery to write your complaints on, most likely. <laughs> the stationery to write your easily ignored complaints on. Correct. What's Okay, so so very, very practical level. Cogra High School, what what is this this million and a half dollars that, they, that they're not getting? What, what does the school need that they don't have? Uh, I don't have those sorts of okay. details, so it's, yeah. That's fair. That's beyond. But, but in general, there's, a, there's this underfunding of public education. Uh, there's the climate change. And it, what's, the, what's the third tier? Housing affordability. So um, people under 35 in this country or young people who have, don't own a home and are renting, they can't afford to buy a home. Correct. Homes are too expensive. Every time I say this, I get a big smile on the this face of people who are in that, that demographic, right? Yeah. So if I was to say to you, should we get rid of negative gearing, what's your response? Uh, my, resp my response is that I do not know enough about the economics involved to have an opinion on that. Okay. So do you know what negative gearing is? I, uh, I think I'm about to embarrass myself, but I'll have a guess. That's great. I don't mind. It's, uh, it's good if we're going to talk policy that everybody's clear about what it is. So if you uh, have an investment property and you have an expense, an interest expense, you can uh, charge that against um, the profit you make from renting it out. And um, that can uh, result in your property having a negative cash flow. Meaning it has more, theoretically, like it has it has more negative value than it has positive value. So the cost of the debt is greater than the income from renting it out. Okay, so let me... Let so me you, make you, you make a loss. You make a loss on the investment. And what do you do with that loss? You can use that loss to offset your personal income tax. I see. Okay, so can I can I, can I see if I've got this on yep, my very, sure. very basic standards? Um, Okay, so let's say someone has a house. Yep. He's renting it out for 200 bucks a week. Yep. And he's paying on the mortgage, say, 300 bucks a week. Correct. So he's technically losing $100 a week Correct. on the house. Uh -huh. So when he goes to file his tax return, he can say, I've had a terrible year. I've lost $100 a week every week on this house. Therefore, I'm in a lower tax bracket than you might have thought. And therefore, I shouldn't pay personal income tax. Yes, it's you, so, you, do, you minus the... Uh, loss from your total income. So if you earn uh, $75,000 and you're making a loss of $100, then you take $5,200 off that 75000 
Right, and so and I then you get tax scales. on the remainder. Okay, and so so long as someone's making in principle seventy five thousand dollars of loss, then you would pay no income tax. Does that extend that far? Uh, yes, that would be true. And so that's so so because it, so how is this phenomenon? That makes sense. How is that phenomenon leading to unaffordable housing here? So, if I choose to invest in property to make money. Um, let's say I am a high net worth individual. Um, I have a very high um, salary. Let's say my salary is three hundred thousand. Okay. So I'd be paying tax in the top bracket. It's almost fifty percent. Let's call it one hundred and fifty thousand in tax. What I can do is go and buy five properties, gear them heavily with debt, so that they're making losses. I could make those losses across all of those properties approximately equal to all the tax I pay of 150000 So I wouldn't pay that tax. Wow. And uh, that's a strong incentive for me to own a lot of property. So that's incentivizing purchasing a property? Correct. So that's, that sounds like it's, it's more than just a local problem. That sounds like that would be everywhere across the country. 100%. It's a federal policy. So negative gearing um, increases demand for property mm-hmm. and People who, uh, not everyone, but many people who um, have the ability to buy multiple properties and negative gear them um, have a lot of capital. And so they are an advantage over people who have a small amount of capital and want to buy their first home to live in. Right. So by removing negative gearing, you take some of the demand out of the market, which helps the uh, first home buyers who want to come into the market. Okay. So this is, you say it's a national policy. Are, are there any countries that you know of offhand where negative gearing isn't permitted? We are a standalone people. We're one of the few countries in the world that allows this. Really? Yeah. So the, the rule usually is that this is a forbidden Correct. economic practice. In a market economy, uh-huh. if you make an investment and it loses money, that's your problem. You know, you should be making investments that don't lose money. Okay. But usually you can't... So that... Where, at what point is this is this illegal everywhere else? Like normally people don't get to write off loss, property losses as on their tax? Correct. Okay. So most of the rest of the world, someone makes $200 rent and is paying $300 on their mortgage. They're losing 100 on the property, let's say, but they don't get to then claim that back on their tax return at all. Correct. Huh, so what, what's, why, why is Australia different in this regard? Look, that's not to say there aren't any places in the world like this, um, but this is, uh, it's an, uh, it hasn't been around forever. It's a fairly modern um, tax uh, subsidy, mm. and I think it's outlived its usefulness and is harmful to young people being able to afford to buy their home. I think the stats are something like um, 10 years ago, um, 65% of people under 35 owned a house, and now it's like 45% of people. Ish. That's a big change. That's huge. We need to make housing more affordable for young people. Okay, so climate education, affordable housing, some of these things sound like they could at least in principle, be local issues. A lot of these things seem a lot more like they're federal issues. What's, what's your... When you, when you say these are, these are what matters to you, 
how much of this can how much change can we make on the level of Wentworth itself and how much of this is just feeding into federal okay policy? so education we have one uh, public high school that is Rose Bay Secondary College it's full we have a lot of children in the public primary school system and there's not enough publicly funded um, spaces uh, here in Wentworth we need to build a new high school so it's state decision to build the new high school but the federal government could assist with funding that the local government can help with finding the location so it's important uh, that all levels of government work together also in education there's a, a, a TAFE in Ramwick the New South Wales Liberal Party plans to sell it off we plan to invest in it and build it up the Liberal Party plans to sell Randwick Tafe? Yes. As in privatise it or as in tear it down and... Tear it down and sell it off. Ooh. That's right. So we're about to go into a period of massive economic disruption over the next 10 years. Artificial intelligence, robotics, declining uh, commodities demand, which is going to wreak havoc throughout our economy. Mm-hmm. People will need <coughs> to reskill to get new jobs and we are going to take down the institution that is most likely going to be most useful in solving that problem. Uh, it's it's really interesting that you say that because in my head I'm thinking, um, you know, my my brother's a, a plumber's apprentice, and his job is far more stable than most jobs coming out of university today. One hundred percent. Yeah. Um, we are at a moment, an epoch-changing moment, where we move from a um, a a. Uh, policy-free zone of the Conservatives to solutions from the socially progressive side of our politics, from the Labour Party. And things like education are broken. Mm -hmm. Only the Labour Party will fix that. Our climate is broken and only the Labour Party will fix that. What do you mean by policy-free zone? What policy does the Scott Morrison government currently have? Um... (laughs) <laughs> okay. All right. And you're going to vote, right? You're enrolled to vote here. I, I believe I am enrolled to vote here, yeah. Right. So my this is the thing. Forms and everything. What is that government going to do for you? Will it give you a climate policy? Likely no. Right. Will they uh, give you a better public education system? My guess is probably not. Okay. Will they make housing more affordable? Um, my guess is probably not. Right. You've got clear choices this time. Right. It's, this is the first time in a long time where on every topic that matters, we are very different. Okay. Can I, can I push back on that a little sure. bit here? When you say it's the first time in a long time, what, what could you can, you... can you give me an example of like this not being the case a few years ago? I think everybody was so far, um, the, the blandness of policy, mm. you know, Labour, Liberal, they sort of look the same. Mm-hmm. And that's no longer the case. The Liberal Party has moved further to the right. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And it seems to have been, it's really, it's really, uh, it's interesting how the, the shift seems to have been, like the fact that we started by talking about the, the politics behind Malcolm Turnbull's uh, decline and fall, let's say, it really seems to have been that, like the the discussion on climate change was wasn't so much happening 
um, and a bunch of other issues. It wasn't so much happening among the the um, the voting public and then being reflected by by politicians as much as that same conversation seems to be being had by like a few people in the Liberal caucus behind closed doors and then they play Game of Thrones to decide who runs the country. Right. I heard one wag say, why don't we do a opinion poll on Monday, see who's the most popular and make them the Prime Minister for this week? It's sort of what's happening, right? I, I would say, like, honestly, it seems like what's happening is substantially worse than that. Right. Because at least then you'd have some form of popular democracy. What you're currently having is, <laughs> let's take a poll on Monday of the Liberal caucus <laughs> and then decide who runs the country. Yeah, well put. All right. Um, let's, I, I want to I talk a bit about your, your past because a few years ago, you weren't living in lovely, <laughs> the lovely Wenhua district. You were in uh, China, building businesses in China. Um, I heard this interview with, um, I forgot the guy's name, but it was on Tim Ferriss' show. He was the uh, editor of Wired magazine and mm-hmm. like, really good at future predictions. And he, his perspective seemed to be, as, as goes China, so goes the future. Um, nice saying. Um, I'm not sure what to do with that. Um, for Australia, that's definitely the case. Uh we are joined to China like a child by an umbilical cord. Our commodities that we dig out of the ground build the buildings in China. If the Chinese economy goes down, it will go down because they're building less things. If they're building less things, we'll be able to sell them less uh, commodities. And so um, a downturn in the Chinese economy would have a very negative impact on our economy. Okay. What I'm interested in is there's a there's like a sort of established way of doing things in what we traditionally think of as the West, which I guess is um, has been Europe first and then uh, Australia, America, Canada second. There's a lot of tradition. There's a lot of like oh how we understand the world that that's different in China or that's absent in China. Yeah. So China gets to meet these texts. Right. It's really interesting you say that. I think one of the greatest things about living in China is you don't see the world through the prism prism of the Anglo-Saxon sphere. Um, And so here in Australia, we receive the world through American and British uh, sort of thinking. Mm -hmm. But that's not the same in China. Um, They're informed by German thinking, by Russian thinking, by South Korean, by Japanese um, it's a very different place for ideas. I did business with Russians, Israelis, uh, Americans. It was a very different business environment. People move fast. You know, oftentimes people will say that, you know, the great thing about China is uh, cheap labour. That's not the case. Labour is actually not that cheap there. What's most impressive about China is how quickly they change. They see movement in the market and everybody moves in that direction. Mm. That ability to move quickly and to transform yourself is a really remarkable thing about China and that's the thing we should fear the most, the fact that they will realise that they need to change to do something and they will do it quite quickly, whereas here we're quite conservative and slow to change. Mm -hmm. I I remember the um, hearing... 
a couple of years ago, something that really uh, moved me was that the uh, the phrase "the lucky country" doesn't so much reflect that oh, this is a nice place to live by itself, as much as it reflects, boy, we're really lucky that we stumbled across all these resources because how else are we going to take a whole continent and run Belgium off it? Correct. I mean, um, when you look at how well the Australian economy has performed since basically 2000 till now, it's just a straight-line correlation between here and the boom in China. Wow. So we're, we're um, wow, tied. But, okay, so you, you're a businessman in China. You, you were doing that with, what, two decades? Correct. Well, I first started um, in the Australian Embassy working in the Trade Department. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that for about two and a bit years. And then I joined Foster's Brewing Group, uh, the Australian company that makes beer. And That's the most Australian thing I've heard. It was. In fact, I wasn't Australian enough for them. And the marketing department in Melbourne said, can you just answer the phone, g'day, mate? And I said, okay, I'll give it a go. Um, but it was great. It was a lot of fun. And I learned a great deal. I mean, working in a multinational, uh, fast-moving consumer goods company, there's no better training for marketing and sales. And that's what I worked in, marketing and sales for the Foster's brand. I used to sell beer by the train load to Mongolia. Really? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I really enjoyed that, but it was also hard work. Um, the competition was intense, prices were low, and it was a bit like the First World War doing trench warfare. It was very tough. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that for three years. I learned a lot. Um, in fact, a lot of the techniques that I'm using on the campaign trail, I learned swinging my bag in Shanghai, selling beer door to door. And it's a numbers game. If you want to be elected, you have to get out and speak to as many people as possible and convince them to buy your beer. Right. And here I'm selling policy. Well, I like it. I, I, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's this old uh, f- phrase. Wait, is it an old phrase? I think I made it up. It's not old. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, but it's an old idea, I guess. The, the, the master resembles the novice. And, you know, you, you see this. Um, I've seen this thing before, but for people who have learned how to sell and then integrated it, that knowledge properly that after a while, it's not like technique, technique, technique. It's like, no, I can speak to you in a very direct way because I understand what is actually important. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that. I appreciate the answers. It's very much that. So after Foster's, I um, started uh, a company with a friend, a media company, and uh, we ran that uh, successfully and then we sold it to a Swiss company which I operated their business for 10 years before going on to found uh, this company with the same person um, 10 years ago and I do equities research now but one of the things that I learned from Foster's was how to sell right. um, and then running my own business I learned to watch cash flow we mm-hmm. had almost no startup capital um, we had to sell every day in order to make the money to put out our publications and I am like most small businessmen very fixated on cash flow I want to see cash flow every day to know how much money we've got in the bank, how much we're projected coming in, and what are our costs. And that's something you have to really keep your eye on in running in business. Operating with constrained resources is the most, the best force to be creative. Right. It's interesting because you're you're saying this now, and I'm and I'm remember uh, just just now when we were talking about the the um, the school systems here. It was, it was, we need this much here, we need this much here. And the standard, um, 
the standard narrative that we hear, uh, and we talked about this a bit off camera, is that you, that the um, Liberal Party is the party of the small business mm-hmm. person, and part of that is the low taxes thing, but part of that is you get this attitude every time the um, every time the the treasurer puts out his his little speech that it's like um, the Liberal Party will say we can't afford anything, tighten all the belts, and then like later on just slip the money where we need it, and the Labour Party will be like, we can't spend. It's important to build stuff, but then everyone's like you don't know how cash flow works. Mm. So it's it's interesting to to hear a small businessman talking about these things in right. that way. Absolutely. And I have to say, as we're now on to the bigger picture of uh, performance of government, um, the Liberal government came in uh, in 2013. Remember when they said uh, we're in a budget emergency? Remember the budget emergency? The debt of our country has doubled since then. This is a budget emergency and this is the party that everybody thinks, the Liberal Party is the party that everybody thinks is the steady hand on the tiller. It's not. Uh, You know, I think in the Labor Party I was uh, saying to a current federal member of parliament, um, look, I really need you guys to get behind this new high school. Um, And the federal member said, that's great, but I want to see the budget figures and I want to make sure that we've got the money to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's a very fiscally responsible group of people that will be taking over this country. Can, can you give me a, an idea here? Of, because you're, you're a trained economist. I, how is it that the Liberal Party can say things like, oh, we, we're um, you know, steady hand of the till, as you say, low spending, and then our debt doubles? Like, what's the mechanism here? So big picture, mm-hmm. economies change. And... Our tax systems change much, much slower. So when an economy moves, your tax system has to move with that economy to keep up with it because where you used to get um, your revenue from is going to change as the economy changes. So by um, constantly wanting a conservative position where nothing gets changed, then you do find that... um, the revenue of government doesn't meet the expenditure. There's nothing more radical and dangerous than continuing to do the same thing when the terrain's shifting. Correct. Um, And we need to have more dynamic government that acknowledges that we're changing frequently and that we have to upgrade our taxation system to match our economy. We have to upgrade and change our education system to manage our economy. Doing what we did in the past won't necessarily help us in the future. Okay. I love it. Um, let me ask you about, we're, we're almost out of time here. Sure. But a couple more things I wanted to touch on. Um, your uh, Indigenous recognition, you, you, you started the nippers just down here at the beach. What's, what is Indigenous recognition to you? Why is this such an important issue? So... Um, the uh, Nippers is the junior uh, lifesavers in training, and it's the junior part of the senior club, which is our surf lifesaving club. Um, kids start um, at six years old and go through to uh, about 14. And we um, service local families around here, but we thought we felt it was important that we bring back a program that was put in place a decade ago uh, called Holidays. Um, where we ran an outreach program for Indigenous kids. So uh, we brought it back and 
we now have 10 Indigenous kids um, from the local region who come and participate in Nippers with us. Fantastic. That was um, our first step towards um, uh, becoming involved in the Indigenous, local Indigenous community. Second step was down at the club, we um, put in a strategy for Indigenous learning. And that is, we will set up a unit of study within Nippers. Every weekend you do things like an environment unit, uh, learning to paddle a board unit. Um, but we'll do a unit on Indigenous culture for this area. Uh, the Gadigal people of this area, they were saltwater people. They used to live up there at Watson's Bay. They used to fish off South Head, very good fishing there. Their stories, their um, dreaming is about the whales that pass us by. Um, they have words and um, knowledge about this area that we'd benefit from knowing. That's important to me because my kids, um, when they go to year one at school, have all been to Vaucluse House where they learn how the Wentworths lived. And it's fantastic. They come home and they tell me the same thing every year when they come back and they're all knowledgeable about how the Wentworths lived. But they don't know anything about how the Gadigal people lived here and they should and we need to change that. I'd like to see us on South Head put an Indigenous uh, cultural centre there so that the people here will know how the Gadigal people lived and the tourists who visit our country just have to get on a pleasant ferry trip to South Head and get off and they can learn about how Indigenous people who still live here with us have lived here. When did this become a, a point of passion for you? I've always been interested in Indigenous issues. Um, when I was a kid, um, I grew up in the countryside and I lived next door to um, home, an orphanage or uh, foster homes um, and they were sort of at the tail end of their uh, how people were using them but most of the children who were there were Indigenous children. People talk about the stolen generation as if it was a long way off. I knew children from the stolen generation. They used to come to my house and... Um, it's been very dislocating for Indigenous people and it's something that I've um, been concerned about throughout my life and I just think it's no longer the time to talk about it in an abstract way. It's mm. time for us to do things and do it locally, not for every Indigenous Australian. I care about the people who live here amongst us. But on the bigger picture, what we can do in the federal government is we can recognise Indigenous people in our constitution and give them a voice in our parliament. Beautiful. Gorgeous. I, I think that's a fantastic place to call it. Tim Murray, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Ike. It's been a real pleasure. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.